The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Uh, welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm John Howard, and I'm joined, as usual, by my colleague, Tim Foster. Hi, John. And our special guest today is Harmie Dillon, San Francisco attorney, Republican, Republican official, uh, really involved in the civil liberties and a bunch of other things as well. So, Harmie, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So the first question, I guess, Tim and I were both interested in is what's your take on the the leak of the Roe v. Wade, a draft decision, it was written in February. Um, does that have any impact that you see on our elections here in California? We're very provincial, California-driven. So does that have any impact, you think, uh, on our elections coming up next month or afterward? Well, I, I have a lot of thoughts about this, but on your specific question, from listening to Governor Newsom speak about this issue this week, uh, you would think that the Supreme Court, if it were to enter this order or something like it would be banning abortion in California. Of course, as we all know, and sophisticated people know, that's completely false. California has the as liberal abortion laws as any state in the United States. And that's not only is that not going to change, I think he's pushing a drive for constitutional protection for it. And so um, what I see in California is we're actually, if not at the rock bottom in terms of political diversity, we are either maybe slightly bouncing back from that. But I think that politicians in California on the Democratic side, which really controls the state, you cannot be a pro-life or even soft on nine months abortion in California right now in the Democratic Party. That's not where Americans are. So if any, if anything, it's likely to have an impact politically outside the state, but in terms of moving the needle for candidates in the primary and in the general election, I don't really see a practical impact. You know, there are already protections uh, in California law. Uh, despite that, the governor said he wanted to put a ballot initiative, propose a ballot initiative, as did the leader of the assembly and the leader of the Senate, uh, aiming it at the November ballot when he is up for re-election. So what's your take on that, on a ballot? Yeah, that's a good question. This, you know? That's a good question. That's obviously, first of all, completely fake and redundant, but it is designed to turn out Democrat voters for the election. And mm -hmm. that in turn is designed to help his party, not him, because I don't think it's going to really impact his race, but it's designed to help his party with the uh, congressional midterm elections. And so that said, um, you know, it drives voters on both sides and Republicans picked up four seats in 2020. We have a couple of pickup opportunities and retain opportunities right now. We have a historic number of Democrats having retired. And with gasoline prices sky high, housing prices sky high, rapid and rising inflation and infrastructure crumbling and frankly, rising crime throughout the cities of California. I actually think that, you know, this abortion issue is, like, again, pretty baked into the populace there. You're. Uh, enraged soccer moms who are really driven by that issue are already voting Democrat. They're already turning out because they're already getting this hype from Planned Parenthood, National Abortion Federation on a weekly basis anyway. So I don't really see it moving the needle, but I, that is the point of it. When in, in San Francisco, um, there aren't that many Republicans in San Francisco. You're one of them. You're a Republican lawyer in San Francisco. I think you're sort of an endangered, or used to be anyway, an endangered species there. So we're all going to die. So <laughs> yeah, we all are right. I'm um, resigned to it. 
and you're also uh, active civil liberties issues. You've been on the ACLU. You're not easy to classify. There aren't a whole lot of Republicans on the ACL board. I say that without a scintilla of evidence, but I've covered politics for 40 years and I don't recall a whole lot of them. So um, how, how do you explain sort of this uh, paradigm, so to speak? You're not easily classified, I guess. And maybe that's a great thing for most of us, but uh, what do you think? Well, I think politics has become this reductio ad absurdum today where uh, people feel the need to, you know, using Alinsky tactics, put people in a box, label them, categorize them and attack them. And, and that's sort of how our politics has been. It wasn't always like that. It wasn't even like that in the United States Senate 20 years ago, where you had people on opposite sides take different votes and then go out and have drinks together. I don't really see that today in American politics. And I don't know where that innocence was lost, if you will, but uh, you know, I'm 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 a lifelong Republican, but I was very alarmed after 9/11, 20 years ago now, 21 years ago now, to see the Patriot Act get passed virtually unanimously, except for Barbara Lee, I think was the only one who voted against it, and also to see um, people of South Asian and and Muslim backgrounds being told to report to FBI headquarters in Los Angeles to, you know, sort of register themselves or, you know, report for questioning. That really enraged me as a civil rights uh, activist. And uh, so I spoke out about these issues. The ACLU of Northern California invited me to join their board. They did not realize I was a Republican at the time. I think it's fair to say they just assumed that somebody who cares about privacy and liberty must be a Democrat. That's a false assumption. And so for, you know, I enjoyed many spirited debates on the board of the ACLU. The ACLU of 20 years ago is not the ACLU today. I cannot imagine any circumstance in which, by the way, they would even bother with any of the same issues that I care about. I have remained a civil libertarian throughout my entire legal career, dating back to day one of that legal career. And I will probably until I hang up my uh, hat, if you will. Um, so there's a lot more conservative civil rights litigation. There was, that wasn't a thing other than Christian and pro-life litigation 20 years ago. Um, I won three cases at the United States Supreme Court uh, in the last 18 months on two on religious liberties issues, a third by my nonprofit, and then a fourth on the vaccine mandate on behalf of Daily Wire. That's a civil rights issue. And so I think there's a lot of activism and, and enlightenment now on the right about these issues. And that's a great thing. More lawyers and more courts talking about our rights, whatever the perspective. I think it's better for America. So I'm very proud to be a pioneer in that field. And where I'm doing it from, it doesn't matter anymore. I now have almost 20 lawyers at my firm and they're in five offices around the country. I do happen to live here. I love California. I got the question yesterday on Twitter, why do you still live there? Why do you live in San Francisco? I said, well, it's beautiful here. California's got 40 million people and it's worth fighting for. It's worth making it better. And so that's why I'm here. What do you think caused the poisoning of the bipartisanship? Why did we lose that? Why are people not as partisan, uh, excuse me, more hyper-partisan than they were before. I date the beginning of that to slightly before I started law school, the Robert Bork confirmation hearing. It was uh -huh. the first time you saw the real shocking gloves off, no holds barred viciousness of a political fight over a Supreme Court nominee. You saw Joe Biden play a very active role in that and others. And so sort of the Supreme Court fights that again, turn back to the fact that abortion as articulated by the Supreme Court, I, in my opinion, as a lawyer is not in the constitution. It could be if we pass a constitutional amendment, it is not widely accepted 
as a norm that you should be able to abort your preborn child in the ninth month, even in the sixth month. Uh, there is a consensus in most voters that some rights should be allowed, but that varies by region dramatically. And so I think that, um, you know, the fact that there's so much weight and anger and partisanship put on the Supreme Court battles is due to the Roe v. Wade issue. Because when you create a law or a, a right by, by a unelected majority of guys appointed by guys, uh, you know, that that's loaded. And so Democrats could easily accomplish their goal by spending a ton of money convincing hearts and minds throughout the 50 states that abortion in the ninth month or the sixth month should be allowed. It isn't allowed in the rest of the civilized world. If they could, they know they can't sell that. That's why there's so much weight on it. With respect to other partisanship issues, um, I, I, I've seen an acceleration in hyper-partisanship that has risen with the rise of social media, in my opinion, and the decline of traditional media. Traditional media with traditional reporters, shoe leather, their job is to go out and get both sides. Uh, I was a journalist before I became a lawyer and we did that. And um, that, that has gone away with, and this is a very complicated subject for a different day perhaps, but the fact that social media has a protectionist aspect to it has allowed so many things to happen in terms of advertising, in terms of clicks and all of that. Even today, if you talk to an LA Times reporter, and I'm friends with several of them, they're considered to be a liberal outfit, but they're fair to me. You know, they'll say, please, I'm writing a story. Please, please click on it and share it because that's how I get recognized. That's how I keep my job. I mean, that's so sad in a way, but it is what it is. And so I think that uh, we have less voices that tell both sides. We have a lot of voices that tell one side. And social media has accelerated that with its algorithms and its unfair and opaque uh, moderation policies. So most people on social media are in a silo and that's how most people get their news today. So that accelerates misunderstandings and division. Now, coming back to Congress, um, some of the older members of Congress, you know, your Orrin Hatches, who just passed away recently, you know, the old lions of the Senate. They no. were able to reach deals and compromise across. Even Dianne Feinstein was one who could talk across uh, across the aisle. But it has become punitive to do that. Um, Democrats, particularly Nancy Pelosi, I think, is responsible for this in the House, creating rigid um, party discipline, which is good for the party, but bad for America. There is no compromise. There's no room for a so-called yellow dog Democrat anymore to have a, a different perspective on this on these issues. There's big money in politics. There's dark money in politics. You must tow a party line in each of these parties to get elected. That makes compromise very difficult. When they talk to their base politicians uh, that I've seen in Washington and also, of course, in California, basically the goal is to sort of inflame the base, uh, activate the base, have your views resonate rather than speak to the larger public. That's happened a lot, happens traditional elections out here, especially during primaries. So you have a lot of rhetoric that is very, it's hyper heated, it's very heated, especially say in Twitter and social media, but it doesn't speak to the larger issues that affect other people who may That's only right. vote once every two years or every four years, they're not really involved in you know, building the base. You, you probably see this in other in red states as well. I'm very frequently say this, that you see corruption in any situation where there's one party dominating it. You definitely see it here in California. And what you see is really, to me, just to be very blunt, 
I think the quality of the state legislators in California has declined over time. Who are these people? How do they get their jobs? Do they even communicate? I don't even know what most of these people stand for uh, because on the Democrat side, they're largely elected by a union machine system. You have to be on, do I think, do I think Gavin Newsom with four children really thinks that children shouldn't have been allowed to go to school for two years? I think he, I think he probably does. And he's a dad, but he's a captive of the California teachers association. You cannot buck the teachers association. You cannot buck any of these unions and keep your job as a Democrat in the state. And so indeed, more and more, we have sort of Democrat union hacks being elected to office. They don't have qualifications. They never ran a business. They don't even pay a mortgage in some cases. They don't own their property. They don't suffer some of the same concerns that the rest of us do. And that informs the quality of legislation. So I think how voters are dealing with that is they're leaving California. People who have money and people who have mobility are simply leaving the state. What does that leave? That leaves the price insensitive. I possibly put myself in that category. And then that leaves people who are seeking welfare benefits or people who are here for ideological reasons. There's an increasing divide in California. And Is public just, financing an answer to that, maybe? I don't think so, because first of all, I don't trust the public financing of anything in this state. You should look at all the things that the public is currently financing. What about look a check the, on your taxes? Uh, yeah. No. There is no chance that more taxes is going to solve this problem. Look at our situation right now in the state. You know, I I won't name names, but, you know, we've had conversations with a number of fairly prominent Republicans who say that one of the declines in the quality of legislators that you're referring to is largely due to term limits. And I've heard this from both sides. uh, And I know that it sure seems like it's hard for a legislator to get their name out there and and really become known to their constituents. I mean, I know that they have a long time in office, but those first few years, it's hard to cut through all of the media and everything else. Uh, Do you think term limits has played a role in, in the change in that, in that aspect of the legislature? Maybe marginally, the term limits are still very generous in California in terms of the total amount of time that you can spend in the legislature. There's turnover. And most of these folks, if they're good, they find another landing spot, go run for Congress, you know, what have you. So generally speaking, I still don't see politicians going away unless they're retiring. They, they, they find some other place in politics. Uh, that itself is a pathology that you want to, uh, like what happened to the citizen legislator? When you really step back and look at California and what do we accomplish here for our voters with our full-time legislature? Not much, not much good. And you look at other states with large populations and they don't have full-time legislatures. So we have all this garbage legislation that comes out. I, I saw something today, it wasn't a state thing. They might've been San Francisco. San Francisco declared yesterday like stuttering day or something. And they like probably spend a bunch of tax dollars on bringing some people together for a press conference to talk about stuttering. I mean, I sympathize, but I've got asthma. Where's like the asthma day, you know? So I, I, I it's, it's silly. Probably there. there probably, probably is, like is one. Day. And then, then that's probably going to be say it's a disease of people of color and blah, blah, blah. There's just all this hype that doesn't have to do with the real concerns of California voters. If California Democrats really cared about the poor and the dispossessed and the people who have to drive two hours to get to work because housing prices are ridiculous, thanks to the California legislature, we would have suspended the gas tax. There's simply no accountability and no pressure in the state to do the things that are better. better. And there's no, and, and everything is viewed as giving into the other side. There don't have to be sides on some issues. It's just like we need to get things done for California. And so I think that, you know, you are starting to see when I said I'm not 
sure we've reached rock bottom or maybe we've reached rock bottom and we're bouncing back. I think Kesa Boudin is going to get recalled here uh, in the next month in San Francisco. Three members of the school board were recalled. I think Gascon's recall is finally going to happen. And I think that um, more moderate people are gonna eventually get elected in some places, but in others, I, I, I don't know. It is very hard some days. When I was outside California this week in Arizona, uh, filing a lawsuit during a press conference, there was a completely different mood of the populace. People didn't seem so like beleaguered and angry as they do here in California cities. So they were doing something wrong here big time in California. Get back to your, your question about civil liberties uh, and the decision, which again, we should say that this is a draft decision. We don't know for sure how accurate this is going to be, but uh, some of the folks I've seen have said that this by basically discounting the value of the, the privacy provision uh, opens the door to overturning other decisions down the road, uh, notably gay marriage, possibly the right of married couples to buy contraception. Do you, you know, you're a constitutional lawyer. What do you think of those, if that draft decision is broadly accurate. Uh, do you see any truth to those, to the possibility that we could be seeing other other changes coming due to this decision? I think that is categorically BS. Okay. That is absolute clickbait by Democrats. And I'm not even talking about mainstream Democrats, extreme activists on the coasts who, frankly, I think when you took at the timing of the sleek, it's a February opinion. It's coming out in May. Uh, it's been floating around, in my professional opinion, as a political figure in Democrat pro-abortion circles for weeks. And its timing is timed around the primaries and to change the subject about what the Democrat Party is suffering in terms of the polls in D.C. Now, if you read the opinion, if this becomes the opinion, uh, Justice Alito is very careful to deal with that issue. And if you forget this opinion and look at the jurisprudence, the jurisprudence on which these rights have been founded has, uh, you know, uh, been built on a norm that I think is really not contested by anybody, namely that if you're going to find these fundamental rights in the interstices or the lacunae of the Constitution, equal protection, due process, it has to be on something that's, that's, that's widely accepted, you know, there's a common understanding in the culture and the community. Loving versus Virginia, interracial marriage, literally nobody is talking about that except Democrat hysteria mongers in DC, okay? Um, in terms of contraception, ditto. Nobody in either party is talking about removing contraception. No justice is talking about it. There's literally no market for that idea. Uh, in terms of gay marriage, I think the fact that you had conservative justices sign on to the opinion and there's been little blowback, frankly, I don't hear any conservatives talking about that issue. And people are very mixed about it on the conservative side if they're religious Christians. Even some of them say, well, I you know, don't agree with this in my church, but you do you. I really hear no demand for that. Abortion is of a completely different category of its own because it involves not one person. I think everyone can agree women should have control over their bodies. But these are two people's bodies we're talking about here, or in some cases, more than two people's bodies. And so that's really the, the fundamental issue. And then secondly, what is ironic is that modern science 
has really changed this legal issue or how the public sees this issue as a social issue. Because 50 years ago, when Roe was passed, we did not know that 15-week fetuses, like in the Mississippi case, the Dobbs case before the court, have brain waves, have heart function, can differentiate music from sound, and can feel pain. These are advances in medical science that have changed people's hearts and minds about abortion. So yes, if you're talking about a living document and a living constitution, then you know if you're basing a right on a societal norm, there is no societal norm. There is no widespread acceptance of abortion in the way that it is phrased in the Casey case or in the Roe case. And so I think that returning it to the states, which makes it hard work for Democrats to create this right, um, and also pro-choice pro Republicans, they're pro-choice Republicans too. This is not a partisan issue in my opinion. They're pro-life Democrats. And they're also atheists who believe in life. There are all kinds of people in the pro-life movement. I've been a lawyer for the pro-life movement. I've stood up in court against Planned Parenthood and National Abortion Federation. And I can tell you that my views have changed over this issue over the years, as have millions of others. And so, so no, the scaremongering that if we accept this opinion that talks about this specific non-consensus issue in the United States will somehow roll back things that nobody is talking about. That is a lie, in my opinion. Well, you're saying a non-consensus, but I, I think John can probably correct me, but the last polling I saw on this, somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 to 80% of Americans believe that abortion rights, there should be some abortion rights. I mean, you're, you're right. That, some that, abortion rights, yes. But I mean, at least However, on, not in the ninth month. What, what the White House press secretary said this week was that President Biden believes in abortion being legal, no conditions, up to the time of birth. That is barbaric, and it is also not permitted in the vast majority. I don't actually, there's no country in the world that I'm aware of, no Western country, where ninth month abortion is permitted. It is extreme. Even six month abortion is extreme. Partial birth abortion is extreme. The, the harvesting and selling of fetal parts, which has been proven through the work of some of my clients, is extreme. It is barbaric. And so I think that you're correct that when you poll it and how it polls are phrased, you get different results. But most people in America believe that in the early stages, if you, in polls I've seen, there should be some availability for it. That's why this should go back to the states. You can probably still get an abortion in your ninth month, which is barbaric and disgusting in my opinion in California, but you may have limitations on it in other states. And I think that's fine because a lot of things in America vary by state. So it's a criminal offense then in states where it will be against the law uh, so in some states, you're going to have a criminal offense for doing activity that in other states is legal. Is there a disparity there that bothers you at all? Uh, that's the way it is in many states, in many issues. It's, it doesn't bother me at all. And secondly, in those states, it's free to talk about banning abortion and criminalizing it for women at, at, after day one mm -hmm. to talking about it. When you actually have to pass that legislation and come before voters and say that your daughter who got raped or, you know, your um, your ectopic pregnancy. I saw one bill recently that if interpreted a certain way would say that a person dealing medically with an ectopic pregnancy would be committing a crime in that state. I don't think there's a consensus around those issues. And so there are going to be some hard conversations in the states. That is how laws should be made. They should not be made by the least democratic institution in our country. And by the way, if you're going to ask me about uh, super precedent and so forth, 
Uh, Dred Scott was a super precedent in our country. There have been many super precedents in our country that are shameful and they have changed. And so I think this okay. is one of those issues. Do you think the leak itself, uh, just talking about the institution, does the, the Supreme Court as an institution, is it hurt by this leak? Uh, matter of fact, who, who benefits, if anybody, from this leak? That's a, a raging debate right now. The Democrats benefit for whatever reason, Republicans benefit for whatever reason, the institution is hurt because some of the mystery is gone. Do you have any thoughts about that? Oh, I've, I've shared my thoughts about this widely. Um, I, I consider it a act of sabotage, even terrorism against the court to do this. The, the just, and I've, I've clerked in a federal court of appeals, not the Supreme Court, but one level below that. And justices and judges in, a, in an appellate setting, they talk amongst themselves. There's a first draft done, and then people try to persuade each other, and uh -huh. nobody spills the beans. And that's necessary to depoliticize it. It has been politicized to the point where uh, I think it is criminal for activists in D.C. this week to have encouraged protesters to come with megaphones outside the houses of six Supreme Court justices to pressure them. That is that is um, that is uh, obstruction of justice under the under the U.S. code. I have a code provision here. And so that has not been the case in our country before. It is recent. And I think that, look. This is a bomb that could have been dropped, and I do use that term advisedly. It is a bomb or you know, blowing up of the foundations of the court. It could have been dropped with the gun, with Heller, the gun control issues. It could have been dropped with Obamacare. It mm -hmm. could have been dropped by either side on so many important issues. It could have been dropped over the vaccine mandate. I don't know, maybe nobody felt strongly enough about that. But it was dropped on this issue because this is a third rail of Democrat politics. It is a sacred cow for the Democrats to say that we have a constitutional right and we don't need to go sell this controversial issue in the states. We got it. We got this right. So I think it has caused incalculable damage. I think every justice will look over their shoulders. Every clerk is under suspicion now. Uh, everybody has gone home in fear of getting that visit from the U.S. Marshals and having to defend themselves against an unfair accusation. Um, and so... Uh, I don't think they can ever regain that innocence. It is a form of original sin, if you will, to have violated this sacred confidentiality. And as I mentioned on television before, um, we have some what probably outsiders would view as some, you know, like old fashioned norms. I mean, maybe journalists have them as well. If somebody says it's off the record, you, you kind of trust it's off the record. But I know every journalist I've spoken to have said, you know, if it's juicy enough, uh, we'll probably burn that burn that relationship and, you know, go for it. Um, so as a lawyer, though, I'm not saying you guys would, but as a lawyer, um, if you get the other side's attorney client memo, you have an ethical duty to stop, drop and, you know, roll and like send it back to them. You're not allowed to use it. Like I saw it, I can't unsee it, but you got to pretend you didn't see it. These are old fashioned norms of the law. And just like saying, hey, what, you know what? I don't agree with this judge. And so I'm gonna try to pressure them with a mob. That's exactly what we're talking about here. We're talking about the use of this draft opinion to foment mob violence, to pressure an outcome, a political outcome in a body that is deliberately framed by the framers to be life tenure and insulated from politics. This is disgusting. And I really think it is an act of sabotage against our system of government. You know, as I understand it, there's no legal, at least right now, there's no legal prohibition against this kind of a leak. Uh, Oh, I, I disagree with you. I, I think it is obstruction of justice. I think it is obstruction of justice. So we'll see. 
But you, do you think something should be codified? Should we have it in statute? Should there be something that would prevent exactly, exactly this kind of thing? I don't know. In my opinion, it, it's prosecutable. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Harmeet Dillon, thank you so much. Thanks for joining us today. Tim Foster, thank you very much. But Joan, I think, uh, I think Harmeet is going to join us for the worst week. Oh, Am I yeah. correct? Yeah. But did did uh, you want to chime in and, and add your thoughts on who had the worst week in California politics? The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. Yeah, well, we were chatting about this a little bit before, uh, and I tweeted about this earlier today. When I read the story about how Betty Yee inserted herself into the, I will loosely call it contracting process for uh, PPE masks uh, from China, I believe, uh, for, at the beginning of the COVID thing, I was really disgusted to see a uh, the highest fin- you know, financial official in terms of disbursements in our, in our state instructing a vendor, a shady vendor who never delivered to not put things in writing, to not say that she was involved, to be putting in words for vendors and to be encouraging no bid contracting. It's literally, we protected her and we, we elected her in California to protect us from exactly this kind of corruption. And I use that term advisedly. So I hope that there is some political will in this state, even amongst the Democrats, cozy crew of guys who just keep swapping seats to get to the bottom of this. Well, I couldn't have said it better myself. (laughs) Uh, Betty, the the contract involved for those who want some detail, there were three contracts. One was worth $600 million. It was for masks at the beginning of the pandemic, early March, uh, early 2020. And um, what had not been heard before, but was learned now, is that uh, the controller, Betty Yee, a Democrat, had email exchanges with principals in the company that later uh, were targeted with fraud allegations. The money was eventually clawed back, but Yee, according to the emails, which is what's new, has been released about this, um, exerted pressure, exerted leverage, and wanted to have the contract approved. That doesn't work well in California. 600 million bucks is a lot of dough, even in California. And uh, Betty seemed to get smacked pretty good this time with this. Tim, you have anything? Uh, that seems like a pretty bad week to me. Um, we'll see where it goes, but uh, that definitely tops. The only person I can think of who even came close and really didn't come that close is George Gascon is getting a lot of blowback as he seems to do uh, on a regular basis, but he's getting a lot of blowback for not charging the man who had attacked comedian Dave Chappelle on stage, not charging him with a felony, which I don't know, I'm not a criminal prosecutor, so I don't really understand how this works, but it is odd because the guy had a pretty unpleasant looking weapon with him. And, uh, and then the other side is that, of course, on social media, he's being shared as being a woke trans activist when actually he was a Trump supporting rapper. So it's kind of a weird, <laughs> this has all sorts of nuts and bolts to it, but uh, you know, Gascon is getting hit pretty hard on this. I think the Betty story is much worse personally, um, but uh, I don't think either one of them are having a particularly great week based on, on the news cycle. So we'll see. It is Friday, you know, could we, somebody could uh, really have a terrible, terrible Friday afternoon. We'll see. Yeah. We would we would have to have a major sex scandal involving multiple players to top that, I think. Well, Madison Cawthorn's in North Carolina, so uh, 
I, I would say any, you know, he, we could be dropping more stuff on him at any moment, but, uh, but uh, he's, I think know. his own side is dropping it on him, to be honest with you. I, I think, I think it is uh, coming from inside the building. Oh yeah. I, I uh, think, uh, yeah, I think you were exactly right. I think they have decided that he shouldn't be carried to term, uh, but uh, you know, terrible I'll joke. That's not, that's not a joke. That's not a good joke, but anyway, um, nice I, to join you guys and uh, enjoy your weekend. Yeah, you too. We'll talk soon. Take care. Thanks so much. And uh, this is John Howard saying we will chat with you next time around. Thanks again. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.